come to you this morning, Lord, and uh, what joy we have, Lord, in being called your sons, and, and what hope, Lord, in, um, in this life to, to know that, that we are the sons of the true and the living God, and that you have um, given us the promise, Lord, that you are going to be faithful to us, that you're never going to leave us or forsake us, that, that, that what you started, what you began in us, you're going to carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, that, that we're your workmanship, that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you've pre-planned, and Lord, that you're forming Christ in us and conforming us into the image of, uh, of perfection, Lord. And that you're patient with us and, and that you've given us grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. And uh, it, Lord, you've given us so much more than we could ever even comprehend. And, and so, Lord, we give thanks to you for it. And, and we pray, Lord, that we might walk worthy of the calling that we have. That, that, that as we carry the name Christian and as we proclaim the name of Jesus and we've been made one with him, Lord, that, that our lives would be a reflection of that. That we no longer walk in the the dictates of the flesh or according to the ways of this world, Lord, but that you would um, give us the power of your spirit to, to, to be Christians and to be Christ-like. And so we, we lay our lives before you, Lord, and, and we pray that you would just continue what you're doing in us and in our families and in our church. And we pray, Father, uh, this morning for Mark and Kelly. We ask that you'd hear our prayer, Lord, as we you said if two or more of you agree concerning anything that it is done. We just ask, Lord, to, for them, that you would just be with them, Lord, that they would see your hand in the things that are going on, that, that Lord, what you're, what you're doing in them would be successful, Lord, as you're teaching them and stretching them, and, and, and Lord, as the fire purifies them, Lord, we pray that, that you would just be successful, but that they'd experience your peace, that they'd experience your, your providence, Lord, in this time. We pray for Elijah, Lord, that you would heal him, Father. I, I can't even imagine, Lord, watching one of my kids uh, go through those things and to not know what's going on and not know what's happening. Lord, I just pray that they would lean on you like never before and that you wouldn't disappoint, Lord. So be with them, Father, and, and show them your, your kindness. And Lord, we just lift up Vinny before you right now, Lord, as uh, today is a milestone, an Ebenezer, Lord. I pray that you would... Uh, fill him with your Holy Spirit, that even today, Lord, he'd experience your presence, that your joy would so fill his heart, Lord, and, uh, and that you'd speak to him, Lord, that, that you'd empower him as a husband, as, as today his life changes, as, to, as two become one, and one becomes two, Lord, I pray that you would just give him power by your Spirit to be a godly man, to, to, to love his wife like Christ loved the church, to honor and uh, and lead her, Lord, that you would just be with him. And, and Lord, we lift up the, the plan that you have for, for his life and their lives together, Lord, that, uh, that you would just prepare them for every good work, Lord. And, um, and we just pray that you'd bless the wedding. And that, Lord, that you'd even cause the sun to come out, if you're willing, Lord. And, um, and so we just lift all of that to you, Father, this morning. And we pray that in this, this Bible study time, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would fill us, Lord, that you'd fill this place. I pray that you'd fill me, Lord, that, 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 that the things that I share wouldn't come from my mind, Lord, or from, uh, from knowledge or from just orthodoxy, Lord, but that, that your Holy Spirit would take this word and this concept, this truth, and, and that you'd anoint it, Lord, that you'd make it living, and, and that it would uh, just so, so uh, touch our lives, Lord, and uh, become a part of us. 
So, so Lord Jesus, we, we just magnify you and we pray that you would just be with us in this time this morning and, um, and, and we give thanks in Jesus' name for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so could you open in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In our last time on this topic of grace, we talked about the various covenants and methods that God has used throughout human history to deal with and relate to man. We talked about six different uh, time periods or dispensations or covenants, however you can use whatever word you want, uh, as long as it you know, doesn't start an argument. <laughs> um, but, but the different things, and, and the two that we looked at that are the, the largest and the longest, or the, the broadest, uh, are the, the covenant of the law that God gave through Moses, uh, whereby he related to man and still does. And then the second is grace, which is, uh, you know, the other one that we're talking about, and that's really the purpose of, of these things. Um, and and we, we, we spoke that grace always existed, that, that whether it was in the time of innocence when Adam and Eve were in the garden or uh, whether it was in the time of human government or of conscience or, uh, or of law or, uh, or any other thing that God has ever done, grace has always been there. And that's always been God's plan A. Uh, and, and that in any time, you know, it's ultimately for the purpose of revealing grace that God has done everything you know, to reveal his love and who he is uh, in all of that. Now, grace always existed, but it was ultimately manifested through the coming, the first coming of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 17, John writes and he says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace comes through Christ, and, and Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of it, not just what he taught, but who he was. The Bible says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and God gave us a living illustration of who he was and what grace was through the person and through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was the manifestation of grace, but Paul the apostle was the apostle of grace. He calls himself that. And God gave to Paul the full revelation, the full understanding of what grace was for the purpose of explaining what was pictured or manifested through Jesus when he came in the flesh. And so the teachings of Paul and the ministry of Paul for us are a magnification, an explanation of what grace is. And so we looked at Paul and we look at his teaching. Now, we could, we could spend months looking at grace. 
I mean, we could do character studies from the Old Testament. We could take individual passages that look at individual facets of it. I mean, the, the Bible is a book of grace. And so we, we really, the, the, it, we're so scratching the surface. I mean, this is the microscopic tip of the iceberg, you know, if you would, as far as how deep grace goes and, and all that there is to understand about it. Um, but, but what we look at this morning is, is a great, uh, a great um, broad look at it, I guess, uh, in this as we see it. So, so what is grace and why is grace I- important? Um, and, and so in order to do this as, as efficiently and as simply as we can, uh, what I want to do in our time this morning is I want to contrast law and grace on three points. Somebody said one time, and in fact, it's just a a famous phrase, people say it all the time, is that opposites attract. And that's true scientifically. Uh, It's also true, you know, in chemistry. And it's true, you know, with people. You know, it's true on so many planes, the opposites attract. But opposites also explain. When you understand a contrast, it helps you to define what those contrasts are and to understand what, you know, each facet of that contrast is, you know. So as we look at law and grace and we see how bipolar they are, how opposite they are, it helps us to understand what they are. And what we discover is that you can't have uh, more opposite things than law and grace. So let's look at this passage. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and um, and let's, let's start at the beginning of the chapter. We'll read down through uh, verse 18, and then, um, and then we'll do this thing and we'll pull some stuff out of here that, that helps us see it. So chapter 3, and uh, I'm using the King James. Um, I'm backslidden, so... Uh, <laughs> uh, do your best, but... Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. Now, he's speaking here in defense of his ministry. and What he's talking about is basically what we would refer to as a letter of or, or a certificate of ordination. You know, if you see a pastor, you go into a pastor's office or, you, you know, someone, that, that's something you would look for or see on the wall is basically, well, who ordained this guy? Where did he get his schooling? Where, what are his credentials? Who am I listening to, essentially? And that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, do, I, do we need this? Do I need to really bring out my papers and talk about my education? And is that what, is that what you need in order to, to respect the ministry that I've had amongst you? He says in verse 2, he says, you are our epistle, or you are my ordination certificate, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. In other words, the fruit of my ministry in your life is the proof that I'm called by God and ordained into this work. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, that is, the the ordination that comes from Christ, Ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not in tablets of stone, but in fleshly tablets of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. In other words, the validation of my ministry is not where I studied or who laid hands on me, but rather it's the effect that it's had in your life as those that have been a byproduct 
and the fruit of the ministry. That's the validation of the ministry. And then he says, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. In other words, it's not my talent, it's not my skill, it's not my education, it's not the years of study, it's not the trials, it's nothing that's ever come from me that's caused me to be effective, but it's all the work of God. And where he's going to end all this is in the next chapter, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, by calling himself a jar of clay. All I am is a vessel. All I am is, is nothing, basically. But now he goes into this contrast, and that's what we're doing. We're contrasting. And here it is. Look at this in verse 6. Who, that is God, also has made us able ministers of the New Testament. Now, right there, you know, you see the beginning of this contrast. In that he's mentioning the New Testament, he's contrasting it with the Old. The Old Testament being the law that came through Moses, and the New Testament being that which is of grace through Jesus Christ. So you see the contrast of law and grace. Not of the letter. Now the letter speaks of the law. The letter, or not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration... now. Again, don't let the King James confuse you too much. The word ministration, right in there, tucked in it, is the word ministry, right? You can even substitute that out if you want. But the ministry of death, speaking of the law. But the ministry of death, written and engraven in stones, if it was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, of his face, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious? Now, you know the story. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law, the Bible tells us that his face was shining so brightly that the people couldn't look at Moses directly because the light in his face was too blinding. And it tells us that he put a veil over his face so that they could, you know, tolerate his presence because of the, you know, the light that was shining from his face. Now, that's all it tells us in the Old Testament about the veil and the light. There was a light, he put the veil so that they could tolerate his presence. Paul is going to tell us something else about that veil that we don't get from the Old Testament. But let's read on here. He says, as he says, uh, then in verse 9, he says, For if the ministry of condemnation, that is the law, be glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness, speaking of grace, exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious, speaking of the law, had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. That's speaking of grace, the New Testament, the New Covenant. For if, verse 11, wait, uh, yeah. For if that which is done away, that's the law, was glorious, much more that which remains, that's grace, is glorious. Verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, 
we use great plainness of speech or you know simplicity in our talk or or uh sincerity really is the word that we're, we're sincere in our speech now notice this contrast grace and we're going to define all this greater as we move through this but but see it here in the text first is that grace affords simple sincerity that's what he's saying there in verse 12 plainness of speech sincerity and hope that's grace but notice the contrast verse 13 and not as moses which put a veil over his face that's not sincerity that's masking that's hiding not as moses who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Now, one more thing, going back to the Old Testament, and understand this, and we'll tie all this together, you know, don't get lost here, but the Bible tells us that when Moses' face was shining, that that glow, that shine, didn't last. In other words, as Moses was off the mountain, out of God's immediate presence, that glow faded. But the children of Israel didn't know that. He had a veil over his face. So they didn't know that it was fading. That's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying that they, they, didn't, they couldn't comprehend by the glow on Moses' face that that glory doesn't last. Because they didn't see that it didn't last. He would go back up on the mountain and then he would shine again. Come down, they'd say, oh, there's the glow. And Moses would say, oh yeah, and he'd pull the veil over his face. And then slowly the glow would fade, but they didn't know that. They couldn't see that, see? And so Paul's saying they didn't understand by the shine that the glory of the law was to fade, that it was a temporary thing, not the real thing, see? We'll come back to that because there's another principle there that's such a blessing to us. But he says, verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day there remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, that's the law, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. Now, you see the contrast? That's all he's doing in these verses is saying they're the old, the new, the death, the life, the, the, the fading glory, the lasting glory. It's all a contrast between the two, and then he concludes that contrast with verse 18. He says, but we all, with open face, meaning no veil, no covering." With open face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image. The same image that is the image of the Lord, the image of his glory, from glory to glory. Now, when he says from glory to glory there, he's not talking about successive levels of glory. You've heard that before, perhaps, if you've heard a sermon on this chapter or heard this verse reference, that he takes us from glory to glory to glory. That's not what he's saying there. He does do that. He, he continually grows us. But in context, here's what he's saying, is that he removes us from the former glory, the fading glory, the, you know, glory of the old covenant that brings death he removes us from that glory and he brings us into the exceeding glory the greater glory of the new covenant 
removing us from the old, bringing us into the new. The glory of the old to the glory of the new, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, later on in the study, we'll read verses uh, 1 through uh, 7 of the next thing as we continue. But do you see that there's a contrast there? So what is the contrast? What is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? And so I want to look at this on three points, uh, you know, this contrast. And so we're going to look at, first of all, the law. And we're going to ask three questions. We're going to say, what does the law, first of all, provide? Then what does the law require? And then third, what does the law produce? What's the fruit or the byproduct, the outcome? And then we'll do the same thing with grace. What does grace provide? What does grace require? And what does grace produce? And we discover that they are as opposite as Paul is presenting them here in chapter 3. So what does the law provide? What does the law give to us? Why would God give the law to man? What's the motive behind it in, in, in terms of what it does? What does it produce? Or I'm sorry, what does it provide? The first thing that the law provides, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, is that the law provides for us a knowledge of the moral qualities of a holy God. The law teaches us the moral qualities of a holy God. God does not require from a being something that he himself is not. In other words, God's not going to ask of someone else to do or to be something that he himself does not do or he is not. And so the law affords to us or gives to us a knowledge of who he is. When Moses met God the first time at the burning bush and commissioned him and said, I'm sending you, I want you to go. The question that Moses asked the Lord was this. He said, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And he said, that's the question they're going to ask me when I go there. They're going to ask me, who is he? What's his name? Because that's something that's kind of on everyone's bucket list. I mean, somewhere in everyone's mind, there is this question is, I'd like to know who God is. (laughs) You know, we all would like to know that. In fact, the very fact that Moses looked at the burning bush and said, I'm going to go check that out was due to the fact that there was something in there that he said, perhaps it will answer this question that's been there spinning in my mind. Who is God? I've never seen a bush that burns but's not consumed. There might be something in this to learn about something. And so he goes, who are you? That's the question that he asks. And that's what the law provides for us. It answers that question. It gives us the moral attributes of a holy God. This is who God is. It represents him. The law does that. The second thing the law provides, is it, and it's in the same vein, is that it answers the question of what does a holy God require from man? What does a holy God require from us? And the law answers that question. What are the conditions of obtaining a right standing before God? And that's something else that man wants to know. I remember that when I got saved, and, and I, you've probably all heard my story or fragments of it, but I was in my car when I prayed the sinner's prayer. I wasn't listening to the radio. I, no one led me. I, I, this was my sinner's prayer. I said, God, if you're real, I need to know it. And if you're real, that's what I said. I said, if you're real, I will do whatever you want. If you want me to 
and I said this, if you want me to shave my head and wear a robe and live in a monastery, I'll do it. If you want me to wear a barbed wire jacket and flog myself, I'll do it. And that was my concept of God. I, I thought that's what he wants. That was my upbringing and you know, my, what I could conjure in my mind. But I came to a point where I said, God, I, I so want to know who you are that I will do whatever you tell me to do. And see, that's in the heart of every human being. Is that, okay, if I get to know God, I'll do whatever he says. See, the law answers that question. It tells us the requirements of what God asks of man. The problem is this. The problem is that the law, though it provides for us a knowledge of who God is and what he requires of us, what the law does not do is that it does not provide the power for us to do it. We don't have the power or the capacity to keep the law that God provides that in turn shows us who he is. We don't have the ability to do it. And so though it provides the knowledge of those things, it cannot ever produce the power it takes to do the things that he requires. To will is present with me, Paul said. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'll do it, Lord. I'll flog myself. Do you think I would have? Maybe once. <laughs> Maybe when people were around watching and they could say, ooh, look how spiritual, <laughs> you know, or something. It doesn't provide the power to perform it. And so the law provides those things, but it also doesn't provide the power to keep it. What does the law require? Question number two. What does the law require? The law requires this. Lifelong perfection. That's the requirement of this law of a holy moral God. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 2 through 5. I'll read it to you. You can write it down, look it up later. But listen to what God says concerning his people and the keeping of his law. It says, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt wherein ye dwelt, you shall not do. So the first is a negative. You're not to do what they did in Egypt or what you did in Egypt. You shall not do after, and then number two, and after the doings of the land of Canaan, where I bring you, you shall not do. So number two is a negative. You're not to do as the Canaanites. Whether I bring uh, you, you shall not do, neither shall you walk in their ordinances or their ways. And then he says, now verse 4, this is what you are to do. He says, you shall do my judgments, and you shall keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, and here it is, listen carefully, if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. He says, if a man is going to agree to these terms, here are the terms that he must live in them. In other words, it's a lifelong commitment. And that's what Paul says, commenting on this verse in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Paul says, which if a man does, he shall live in them. In other words, lifelong perfection. That's the requirement of the law. It's what it requires. So you say, I'm going to keep your law, God. I'm going to measure up to the moral standard that you uphold and I'm going to attain a righteous standing before you by keeping the law. God says, okay, here it is. On your market set, go. 
and he probably watches with a smile on his face. Let's see how long they can do it. It's like the guy who, you know, he was praying to the Lord, and he said this. He, he knelt down, and, and he said, Lord, I, I've done it. He said, I, I didn't sin once today. I didn't think a sinful thought. I didn't speak an evil word. I didn't do anything that was contrary to you. I did it, Lord. I, I didn't sin at all today. But in a minute, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm going to need a lot of help. <laughs> it's impossible. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Paul establishes, you know, the, and explains what I just read from Leviticus. As he says that there is a righteousness that the Jews sought to attain by keeping the law. But they never found it. They were never able to do it. Because the law requires perfection. It also requires careful observance. In Deuteronomy, which we just finished on Wednesday nights, I, I, I was taken by this because it just jumped on me. But in chapters 6 through 11, I mean 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, that's six chapters. In six chapters, 25 times in six chapters, God says, you shall do my judgments my voice, my, my laws, my ordinances. 25 times he says that. Warn them, be careful that they do it, that they do it, that they do it. Then again in chapters 26 through chapter 30, that's five chapters, he says it 16 times more. And in between those two, he told them what the law was. He, so he says 25 times, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Then he tells them what it is for, you know, 15 chapters or so. And then 16 more times. Now do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And he's like the great motivator. You know, like do it, do it. And yeah, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And you know what? They tried to do it and they fell flat on their face. It requires careful observance. So what does the law require? Perfection and careful observance. And now number three, third question concerning the law. What does the law then produce? What is the byproduct or the fruit of a person's life who says, I am going to keep the law of God? Here it is. Number one, it produces a curse. <laughs> Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. You write it down if you're quick. It's just one verse. But Paul says this. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law, that is, if your relationship with God is based upon your ability to keep the law of God, he says, for as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So in other words, if you are relating to God under the law and you fail even in one point, the Bible places your life under the curse of God. That's the byproduct of the law. And so is the truth. You can see it or feel it in the life of anyone who seeks to relate to God that way. Is that they constantly feel as though they're cursed. They constantly feel, no, they know they are. They're watching God work in some people's lives and they themselves feel separated from that work. I've felt it. I've been there. You know, and, 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 and I've seen it. I see it in people. There was a guy here at the church on Wednesday night, a young guy, you know, recently saved, zealous beyond anything I've ever seen. Caught up, and he's, he's been discipled by people that, that are in the holiness movement. Basically, another formation of the law. That God's blessing in our lives is contingent upon our ability to be holy. 
and I watch and I see, man, I know where he's going to be in 10 years, either out in the world again, sinning like crazy, or set free in grace, you know, like I was, you know. Uh, amazing, you know. So it produces a, a curse. And in that curse, you say, what does that curse look like? It looks like, well, it looks like a lot of things, but it looks like frustration. I'm constantly trying to experience God, to measure up to God, but I, I can't do it. It's not working, and so I'm frustrated in my Christian experience. It also is fatigue. You get tired. Man, I, I'm trying so hard to do what's right, and it's so contrary to my human nature, and I have no power to perform those things that, you know, this Christian thing is hard. It's, it's tiring. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. That doesn't describe my Christian experience. My Christian experience, this is hard. And then a third is that it produces guilt. You're constantly in a sense of guilt because you know you're not living up to the things that you're supposed to be living up to. And so it's a constant pressure of guilt and, and shame in your life because, you know, oh, oh I, I fa- I'm a failure. I can't do the things that I'm supposed to do. And that's, those are the words that describe what Paul meant when he said you're under the curse. You're frustrated, you're tired, and you're guilty because that's what the law produces. Number two, and this is huge, if you've been zoning out or if you're still tired, wake up because this is huge. Here it is, listen. Number two that the law produces is that the law produces hypocrisy. It produces hypocrisy. Now, look back at 2 Corinthians. If, you're still, uh, if you still have your Bible open there, I want you to see this because there's something so incredible here that Paul is showing us. Something so applicable. Look at it. Verse uh, 6. Oh, we, we already read that. Let's, um, let's go to verse um, 12 again and, and, and just open up this picture book a little bit. He says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech or sincerity in our speech. And then he says, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished, but their minds were blinded. Uh, you know, and we read it, you know, he goes on the whole thing and, uh, and we discussed the veil. But here's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying that the reason initially for the veil was to protect the people's eyes from being blinded by the glory. But here's what that reason became. The reason became so that they could not see that the glory was fading. He put a veil over his face so that they couldn't see that the glory was fading. Do you know what that veil represents? It represents hypocrisy. It's the opposite of sincerity, which he spoke of back there in verse uh, 12. See, here's here's how it works. Here's what it looks like, is that I'm, I'm relating to God under the law. And so what happens is I, I, I get revived. I go to a conference or, uh, you know, I, I have a, just a, a time in church maybe or a weekend service. Something happens and God touches my life. He renews me. I feel washed. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. And I say, God, I'm not going to let you down this time. And the glory of the Lord is upon, the joy of the Lord is in my life. The peace of God that passes all understanding is the characteristic that describes me. I say, I'm not going to, Lord, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to crucify this flesh. I'm going to say no to temptation and sin. Oh, Lord, I, I've, I've got it, you know. 
And, and we come down off the mountain, and Monday morning, we get up 5 a.m., we get into the Word. You know, we, we, we're going to muscle back the, the fatigue and the drowsiness, and, and we walk with the Lord. But what happens is the glory of that revival, of that filling, of that washing, that glory begins to fade. And, and, and the discipline that I promised God I was going to have, it, it doesn't last the high that would empower me to say no to temptation doesn't endure. And so by Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the glory's fading. But here's the thing. I feel the despair beginning to grip me. I feel the guilt and the shame creeping in. But, but, but I don't want to be honest with myself that, that, that something's wrong. And I certainly can't let anyone else know it, that I'm, that I'm not doing as good as I'm supposed to be doing. So what do I do? I put up a veil put a veil on now so so I come to church and I use all the Christian language I say hey praise the Lord God bless you man God is good and, and here's what's happening you're you you you're seeing the veil the curtain and, and you're thinking as you interact with me you're thinking wow there is some serious glory going on in there wish I had that glory I don't but I don't want him to know it so I better put my veil on yeah you say yeah praise the Lord man he's good but inside you're thinking, man, I feel so far from God right now. I don't know if I've ever felt this far away from God. But I can't let anyone else know it. I, the light, they have to think that there's light. They have light. That guy's got light. I ain't got light, but I can't let them know. So now I'm wearing a veil. That's the law. It produces hypocrisy. And here's what happens is that you begin to live there. You live behind a veil. And the glory fades and fades. And now because you're under the law, you're so tired from trying to keep everything, that that just becomes your way of life. I'm not even going to try anymore. I've learned how to wear a veil, and, and, and I've got, you know, fluorescence in here and LEDs, and, and, and you know, there's all kind of little false beams shooting out all over the place, and everybody thinks I'm alive in Christ. So now I'm just going to, that's my thing. I go to church, and I wear a veil, and I pretend I'm spiritual, and I've learned how to survive that way. And what you become is a Pharisee. Now you're just like the Pharisees were in Jesus' day. They wore the robes, they had the hats, they had everything outward to make it look like they were right. But they were so far from God that they didn't even recognize him when he was standing right in front of them. And that's what happens. That's what the law produces. It's hypocrisy. It's a veil. It's fake, see? It's a falseness. That's all the law can ever produce. It's all it ever could, would produce. It's, it's, you're a hypocrite. You're, you're pretending to be something that you're not. And then finally, ultimately, and it's you know, a, the byproduct of hypocrisy, the law produces death. And that's what Paul says, clear as crystal, back in verse 6. He says, who has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, notice, killeth. That's what it does. The law kills. It kills your spirituality. It kills your zeal, your love for God. It kills, it kills everything. The law kills. The day Moses came down Mount Sinai with the two tablets, 3,000 people died. They were sinning before they even <laughs> had a chance. I mean, and, and Moses drew a line in the sand. He said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come over here. And whoever didn't, Moses said, now go and, and purify Israel. 3,000 people died the day the law came down. But on the day of Pentecost, when grace was manifested by the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us that 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people 
made professions for Christ and were baptized the day that the Spirit came and Peter preached grace through Jesus Christ. See, the law kills. It's all it could ever do. It's the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death. So you say, okay, if this is what the law produces, the law produces a curse, it produces hypocrisy, ultimately it produces death spiritually and to my joy and to anything that's good in my life, why in the world would God give that? What was God's motive? If, if nothing good could come from it, then why did God give it? And here's the answer, because here's, here's the fourth thing that the law produces. The law produces in my life conviction. Because I recognize that those are the moral attributes of a holy God. I see how far away from that my life measures up to be, and the check engine light goes on. That's conviction. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I'm not what he wants. I'm outside of, of that, that perfection that he is. And so now I'm conviction, convicted. Then I realize that I'm not able to do the things that he wants me to do. It's outside of my capacity. I can't do it. And so if I'm honest with myself when I come under conviction, it leads me to condemnation. Now I'm condemned. Because if God requires perfection and I'm so far away from that, then the result must be that I am destined to be separated from God. I cannot be one with God and therefore I'm condemned. And condemnation brings about or equals failure. So now I've failed and, and so there's absolutely nothing that I can do to ever measure up to the standard of a holy God. And here's what the Bible says. This is the glory. Ready? Here it is. Because once I've been convicted, condemned, and failed, the only thing that's left is hope. That's all that's left. Is that if it's impossible for me to keep this law and measure up to this standard, then there must be another way. There's got to be another way. And that's where you find grace. See, Romans chapter 3, verse, let me read it to you. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, says this. When I read this, my heart came to life. You, you guys, some of you know my story. The first book I read when I gave my life to Christ, was Romans. And when I read this, I got it. I understood it. My heart came to life. Listen to it. Romans 3, 19. It says this. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. That is, it was the intention of God that the law would bring the world into conviction, condemnation, and failure. The whole world becomes guilty before God under the law. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. That means no one anywhere ever can be justified before God by keeping the law and their ability to do it. So you say, well, then what's the purpose of the law? Here it is, last, last sentence in the verse. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You say, why did God give the law? Here's why. Because if he didn't, you would never know how far from God's perfection you really are. The law reveals to you and I that we are sinners. That we're sinful. And that was God's intent. That it would bring us to conviction, to condemnation, and to failure. That we would know that we are sinners. And therefore, we would say there's got to be another way. 
And that's what he goes on to say in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And then, you know, he goes on to talk about Christ and grace. The law leads us to grace. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, it's Galatians 3 verse 21, Paul says this, he says, is the law against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. In other words, if there was a law that you could keep, then righteousness would be by the law. But, verse 22, the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, closed off from the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. You understand? Conviction, condemnation, failure unto hope that would then bring us to Christ. The law being the schoolmaster that brings us to that point of need so that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're set free from the law by our faith in Jesus Christ. And our righteousness is not by the law, but it's through grace, by faith in Christ. So the law ultimately produces nothing but a curse, hypocrisy, death, but... In those that have faith, it brings hope that we might be saved by faith through grace or the other way around, you know, you get it. So what then, grace, and this won't take as long as law did, but grace, what does grace provide? We see what the law provides. What does grace provide for us? Grace provides, first of all, a substitutionary atonement for sin. No longer is it on me or, or up to me to keep the law, to be righteous, to be holy, but rather it provides an atonement, someone who kept the law in my stead, in my place, and paid the debt that my sin incurred. That's what grace provides through the person, the work of Christ. A righteousness from God that's apart from the law. Grace also provides a way into fellowship with God apart from my moral works and my ability to keep the law. Ephesians chapter 1. Just a couple pages if, you're, if you were in Galatians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
Grace provides us atonement for our sin in relationship with God, not based upon what we do, but based upon what he did and what he gave. It also, uh, okay, number two, what does grace then require? The law requires perfection. It requires careful observance. What does grace require? Grace requires faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. Faith is the exercise of simply believing God and taking Him at His word. The Bible teaches that faith is not something that you attain. It's something that you choose to do. Belief is a choice. The Bible says that that those that are damned are damned because they will not believe. It's not that they cannot believe. It's that they will not believe. I can read the promises of God And I can see his testimony in creation and in my conscience and through other Christians. And then I make a choice of whether or not I'm going to believe it or whether or not I'm going to refuse it. It's a choice that I make. And so the choice that I make to believe God and say, yes, I believe and I receive what you did, that faith then is counted for righteousness and it imparts grace to me. It's by grace through faith. And so I believe Romans chapter 10, um, and you know, that's the great, uh, you know, the, 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 the verse that just explains how a person gets saved. It says in verse 9 of chapter 10 there in Romans, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you shall believe in your heart, that's faith, that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes that I choose to believe unto righteousness, and then with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. The Bible says that from the abundance of what's in the heart, the mouth speaks. So if in my heart I choose to believe, then what's in my heart turns out to be the profession of my mouth. I call Jesus my Lord. And the Bible says that at that point, grace is imparted to you as a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't ever measure up to it or be worthy of it, but God gives it to you as you choose to believe in Jesus Christ. So grace requires faith. It also, in part, requires humility. As men, we don't like anybody to do things for us. You know, I'm putting siding on my house right now, and uh, there's an issue with the, the material. You know, they changed the design, and there's a flaw in it. And so they offered to come, and, you know, tear off what I've done and replace it with something else and put it back on. And I said, no, uh Nobody's putting something on my house but me, <laughs> you know. You know, it's pride, you know, that's what, that's what it is. I want to say, I did it, <laughs> you know. I don't want someone else doing it. That's, that's us men. We don't want anybody to do anything for us. And we want to say, I've earned what I have. We don't want to ever say, well, it's been given to me. Everything has been given to me. And when it comes to salvation, pride keeps people from salvation because they say, well, I'll get there myself. I'm going my own way. I can do it. I'll I'll get there. But see, grace doesn't let you do that because grace says there's only one way, and that way is to come humbly, confess your inability, and then receive what Jesus did on your behalf for you, what you couldn't do. And so humility is, is, is required by, because, through grace because we come humbly. Every knee will bow. 
Some will bow before and some will bow after. Blessed are they who bow before. And it also requires repentance. Because for the law to do its work of bringing me to grace, I have to recognize and realize that my flesh, my sinful flesh, is in contrast to the ways of God. And grace does not allow me, it does not give me license to continue living after the flesh. Or to grace doesn't excuse me from the moral attributes of a holy God. Now we'll get to this. Grace provides the power to do what God wants, unlike the law. But it does not allow me to justify my wickedness and continue in sin so that I can say, well, it's just by grace and I can do what I want and God just give me a free pass here. Every time you read the gospel preached in the Bible, in the New Testament, repentance is an ingredient in that message. Repentance is a necessary part of this gospel, this grace that we've received. So it requires faith, it requires humility, it requires repentance. What does grace produce? And this is where we, we finish, begin to land the plane, the wheels are coming out, you know, and the captain's on the horn, you know. Grace produces, first of all, salvation. For you are saved by grace through faith. God's unspeakable gift of transferring us from darkness into light and passing us from death into life. You are saved from wrath by grace through faith. And to think just right there what that means and how much that costs and, and what that entails is huge. The lengths that men go to in an attempt to keep the law because they want to save themselves. Because they can smell somewhere in their inner being the fumes of hell looming in their future. They will do anything, go anywhere, pay any amount of money to somehow free themselves and grace provides freedom through the blood of Christ freely. It produces salvation. Second of all, it produces sonship. It isn't just that he's a daddy warbucks who walks through the line and gives everyone a free pass into the ride. It isn't just that he's this impersonal being that says, all right, I'll let you into my kingdom. Come on in, let's see what you can do. But the reason why he did it, the motive behind God saving us is because he wanted us as sons. That as our father, he wanted to relate to us. He wanted us to know him. He wanted to experience him. He wanted us to call upon him, to know his presence with us moment by moment to hear his voice in our ear constantly speaking us, leading us, guiding us, shepherding us. Number three, it produces freedom. Freedom from the guilt that the law kept us under. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers perfect. For if they could, then, then wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers once cleansed would have no more conscience of their sins. But in those sacrifices under the law, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. 
For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So the law can never free you from your guilt, no matter how much sacrifice you produce. But the blood of Christ can remove guilt. You can walk in a way wherein you're not under the condemnation of guilt. Grace provides that. The law never could. It provides freedom from sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says that the strength of sin is the law. Do not, I'm, t- I'm giving you a command right now. I want, you to, I, I want you to listen to my words. Do not picture in your mind a purple elephant. Don't picture a purple elephant. Don't do it. Do, do not fight against the temptation to picture in your mind what a purple elephant would look like. Don't do it. Don't do it. See, now you had no struggle with that before I said it, right? You, you didn't think, you, you weren't going, oh man, I can't focus on what he's saying. As this purple elephant is just in my mind, you know. <laughs> but once I say it, and it's law now, right? God said, don't eat from that tree. You have 200 square miles of garden. You can go, enjoy, tend it, keep it, enjoy. Don't eat from that tree. Where were they hanging out? What do you think it does? (laughs) I remember my brother, you know, well, never mind, too many stories, we're out of time. It frees us from sin. The strength of sin is the law. To be freed from the law is to be empowered against sin. And that's, uh, and and number three, is that the law frees us from hypocrisy. I'm sorry, not the law, grace. Grace frees us from hypocrisy. That's the sincerity that Paul was talking about there in verse 12. Look back there again and let's read chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first seven verses. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, it ties what he previously said to what he's about to say. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, grace, we faint not. But we have renounced the hidden things. Now, the hidden things refers to hypocrisy. We've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Not walking in craftiness. That's like sleight of hand. You know, saying things that have one implication, but they mean something else, you know. Not handling the word of God deceitfully. That is, in in a way of using the word of God to make myself appear spiritual or to get you to do something, to try to to motivate you to, 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 to behave a certain way, but it's not coming from the heart. Using the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth. Now, I love that. Just listen to those words again. But by manifestation of the truth. Do you know why I love what I do? Why I love what I'm doing right now. It's my favorite thing in the whole world because all I have to do to be successful is make the truth known. I don't have to come up with points or ways to to make it sound good or to get you to believe it. All I have to do is tell you what it says and what it means. Manifest the truth. And, and, and you know how you know when you're doing a good job? You, you know, I don't have to. All I have to do is explain it. And you, and you in your own heart, your own mind can say, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. I see that. That's right there. It's clear. Wow, I never saw that before. But wow, clear as crystal. Look at that. How about that? Just manifesting the truth. 
Best thing I ever heard on Bible teaching is this, is that Bible teaching is not climbing up a ladder, picking apples, and throwing them down to the people that are down still on the ground. That's not Bible teaching. But rather, Bible teaching is building a ladder and bringing the people up into the tree so that they can pick the fruit themselves. And that's what it means to manifest the truth. It's just reveal what's there, and you, here, it's yours for the taking. Look, here's a leaf. Look, if I lift up this leaf right here, what do you see? There's an apple. Here, take it. That's it. Man, Paul says, I don't have to be crafty. I don't have to wear a veil. I don't have to appear spiritual. I don't have to be a hypocrite. I just have to let you know what the truth is. Manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, you look at me, you see my life, you hear my words, and you could say, wow, that's transparent. There's no veil there. He's not trying to be something he's not. He's, he, there's no light coming out of these things, and, and, and I look at him and say, I could never be like that. He's just like me. He's a man just like me. He's got the same struggles just like me. He's weak. Paul was almost blind. He's ugly. Paul said, I'm not, I'm not much to look at, you know. He said, in presence, I'm weak, I'm base, I'm lowly. There's nothing there. Commending ourselves to their conscience. But if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. Now, where does the light that we have come from? It comes from Him. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our spirituality. It doesn't come from our personal holiness. It doesn't come from the fact that we have devotions every day, or how much of the Bible we know, or how much service we do. That's not where our light comes from. Our light comes from God. He has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The NIV says jars of clay. All we are is a jar of clay. That's it. Frail, weak, unvaluable. It's dirt that's been formed, baked, and cured. That's it. Maybe glazed. That we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And you know what that allows us to be? It allows us to be what we are. No hypocrisy. I don't have to come in here and pretend to be something I'm not. I don't have to sit here and hide my weaknesses that I can struggle with the flesh or with pride or with ambition or with a self-righteousness. I don't have to say, oh yeah, I got victory over those things. Maybe someday you could be like me. That's hypocrisy. It produces death and breeds hypocrisy. We are what we are. And God somehow is able to use what we are in grace to make himself known to other people. He can't do that under the law. He can't do that with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy turns people away. Makes them hide. See, so it frees us from that hypocrisy. And then finally, what the, I know that the landing gear came out a while ago. We're right there, six inches off the thing. There's just a few turbulence here, you know. Grace provides for us the power to do the things that God 
wants us to do and be. The law can never provide the power to keep it, but grace does. You see, how does grace do it? The answer is right there in the text again. Look back in verse 6 of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, who also has made us able ministers of the, what? New Testament or new covenant. The New Testament, the new covenant. What is the New Testament or the new covenant? Well, it's grace, you know, if you want to define it in a word. But Jesus said it was in his blood, right? He said, this is the New Testament or the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah said this. He said, I will make a new covenant with them in those days, saith the Lord. Is that no one will say any longer, know the Lord, for all will know me. Why? Because he's going to put his spirit in us, in your heart and in your mind. Notice, look down at verse 18, the the final verse there in chapter 3. He says that we are changed into the same image, the image of Christ, from glory to glory. How? Even as by the spirit of the Lord. You see that? You see, the power of this grace covenant is that he gives us his Holy Spirit, which empowers us to do his will and to be conformed into his image. The law couldn't give you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit didn't come until the day of Pentecost when the blood of Christ was shed. See, that's what gives us the power to keep the law. The what of God's word only matters if we have the how of the Holy Spirit. And that's what God gives to us in grace, is that he gives us the power through his spirit to do the things that he wants us to do. You understand? It's such difference. That's the whole difference, is that he gives us the power to do it. God's desire for us is that we live in his presence, is that we know his voice, that we experience life in his name, and that we bear fruit for his kingdom in leading others to him. We can never do that under the law, but through grace and the covenant of grace, we do all of those things. We know him, we hear his voice, and we can bear fruit in the lives of others because we ourselves are free from the curse of that law. May God give us that grace. May we experience it. And I pray that if there's anyone here that's hiding behind the veil of hypocrisy or you under the curse of frustration and guilt, that you would, by faith, fully believe that God has completely forgiven you of all your sins and that you stand by grace perfected in his sight, not because of you, but because of him. And you're free to enjoy him, to fellowship with him, to talk to him, even if you slept in for seven days in a row. Even if your Bible has gathered a little bit of dust on it, you know, that you're no further from him than you would be had you been every day reading and doing the things, whatever, that you would promise otherwise, you're free. You understand? You're free. And that brings us close. And that draws us in. And it makes us want to read because we want to know him more. And it causes us to pray. It's, it's grace. It's all of grace in Jesus' name.